Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our reading for today is Titus 3, verse 4 through 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs, according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Amen. Please be seated. We are looking at chapter 3, verses 4 through 8 as read. We will then finish next week formally the book of Titus, chapter 3, 9 through 15. I would like to consider two other passages inside the New Testament which echo the primary idea of Titus, which is Jesus works, how our justification always causes our sanctification, leads to our glorification. But you'll notice in our text, our preceding paragraph showed how the Jesus seed bears the fruit of respect and civility toward those who govern above us. Verse 3 shows the radical nature of the gospel. Notice what it says in verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. And then verse 4 begins with, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. There's this significant contrast that takes place between verse 3 and verse 4, and it shows us the transforming power of the gospel. Several times in our study of Titus, we have used the statement, the radical gospel. The gospel does something in us which is transformational. Verse 3 shows us the radical nature of the gospel. It takes us from what we once were in Adam and completely and thoroughly changes us to what we now are in Christ. And there is a gap between the two, between verses 3 and 4, that no flesh can traverse. We cannot fill that gap. Our present paragraph, 4 through 8, shows the power behind this deep-seated transformation. The Chronicle of Philanthropy, it's a news and information source for all things charitable, tracks the amount of money that's given by donors, and the organization releases data on the largest donations made public each year. In 2016, the 10 biggest charitable gifts totaled $4.3 billion. This past year, the total came to a whopping $10.2 billion. From our vantage point, that seems like a large sum of money. And indeed it is. The largest donation was given by Microsoft founder Bill Gates and wife Melinda, totaling $4.6 billion in Microsoft stock. When we go about describing God, we will often refer to his divine attributes or characteristics. You know, what is God like? And you'll say, well, God is holy, God is gracious, God is kind, God is loving. God is all-powerful and all-seeing and all-knowing. We attempt to reduce God to single qualities such as love or holiness. 
Yet God is always more than the sum total of his attributes. We speak of God saving humanity for his glory. Well, why did God save us? Well, we say for his glory, which is true, but it wasn't his holiness or even his glory that drove him to do what he did. This text tells us what drove him to do what he did. It was his love for that which he created. If you look at the text for just a moment, I'll come back to this, but when it says in verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, the word loving kindness is really to be translated, and I believe it's that way in the King James, is his love for humanity. It is the Greek word from which we get our English word philanthropist. Thus, I've entitled the paragraph, God, the first philanthropist. We look at someone like Bill Gates and other incredibly wealthy people, and they give millions, if not billions of dollars, and we think, isn't that incredible? But there is a first philanthropist. And the reason why all of them give is because God first gave. It's the same language of Scripture when it says we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. And the text tells us that God has a love for humanity that drove him to become incarnate, to die the death of the cross, to be raised again, ascended, enthroned, so that you and I might enter into the joy that he has within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What drove God to do what he did? God's love for humanity. That's what the text is telling us. The text tells us what drove him to save us. His love for humanity, his kindness, his mercy. This love is so powerful as to save us from our past sin and for good works. Only God can do that. Only God can render such transformation in the hearts of people who not only hate, as our text says in verse 3, we not only are hated by others, but we hate one another. What then changes us so that we love one another? Well, that's the radical nature of the gospel. He moves us, as our text will tell us, from disobedience to obedience, from existing as orphans to actual heirs, from those who deny him by our works to those who confess him through our works. That's what the gospel does. This is how powerful God's love is. His love secures his end. Neither you nor I can stop the hand of God from acting. Our will is not that powerful as to stop God's intent. He did not make our will his equal or superior. Nothing stands above God, and all will bow before God. That's how powerful God is. And God set out to save, and God saves. This passage graphically and powerfully explains this idea. As we already noted, there is a progression of revelation that began in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where it talks about the knowledge of truth. And it seems incredibly abstract and sterile, the knowledge of the truth. Do you know truth? Well, that truth becomes embodied. That truth takes on personality. It's not something that exists in the abstract. And then in chapter 2, 11 through 14, it talks about the grace of God has appeared. It starts fleshing out this idea of the truth. And then finally, in our text, it speaks of the kindness of God and Savior and his love for mankind. So we have a clear understanding, a clear vision, a clear explanation of just what is meant by that. That is Jesus. 
There is an intentional structure within our text between chapters 2 and 3 that we have noted as well. In chapter 2, you have the gospel in the church. Then in chapter 3, the gospel in the community. What is my responsibility or response to those who are in authority? Chapter 2 and chapter 3 both have this melodic line that the gospel seed, Jesus' seed, is always producing gospel fruit. And then finally, an exhortation, which we will end with next week. God alone moves us from verse 3 to verse 4. God alone takes us from chaos to cosmos, from disorder to order, from this to that. This is what the gospel does. It changes us. It radically changes us. In fact, the scriptures throughout speaks of God making all things new. If we be in Christ, we are in a new creation and we are in a new, we are new creatures. This is what the gospel does. It radically changes us. Neither you nor I can stop this from taking place. God takes us from where we are as sinners and through his redemptive activity turns us into heirs. He is the one who makes all things new. We often ask ourselves as to God's motive. I mean, why did God do what he did? Why did he do this? This text answers that question. This text tells us that he loves us. God loves us. I know there's a sense in which we've become so accustomed to the idea that it, it appears common. And yet God loves us. And God's love is active and it's doing something in each one of our lives. It's changing us from being hated by others and hating one another to actually loving one another and loving our enemies and praying for those who despitefully use us. That's the power of the gospel. That's what the gospel does. In our horizontal existence, we speak of loving people or being loved. I know that I'm loved. I know that I love people. Yet sin taints every human expression of love. Yet in the shadow of love, the horizontal, we see reflections of the divine. But it is still impossible for us to fully understand the depth of God's love when the text tells us that God loves us to the degree that his son would take on human flesh. He appears and become for us what we could never become for ourselves, the sin bearer. Through the New Testament and this letter, we read of Jesus being the voluntary and vicarious sacrifice for sinners. And I recognize that there's a, a fullness to those words that escapes us, voluntary. He did not have to do what he did, vicarious. He took our place. He did not take our place. He took my place. I was the one who was to die. I was the one who was to feel the full brunt of my sin. And yet Jesus Christ on the cross took it for me. So that when I stand before him, I can be blameless. I can be an heir. I can be received as a son. It is only in him that the wrath of God against us and the sentence of God could be satisfied. Romans chapter 5 gives a straightforward word concerning this love. It says, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not only why we were weak and at war, but we were wicked. And in all that, Christ died. There was no change in us prior to that activity. God did it, and from that, he changed us. This is the magnitude 
of God's love for his people. He loves us even when we are weak, when we are at war and wicked sinners, when we stand in rebellion against him and we find it difficult to bend our knee and bow our head, God still loves us. That's amazing. It is his love that changes us from those who were hated by others and hating one another to those who are lovers of God and as a consequence, lovers of one another. And only the Jesus seed can so powerfully change us into this. Now, there are three things within the text that I will highlight. The first is the descriptive of the person of God. What is God, how is God rather described? Well, he's described in three ways. Kindness, loving humanity, and mercy. Then the provision of God. What did he do in our behalf? He did for us what we could never have done for ourselves. And then finally, the promise of God is a consequence of who he is and what he does. And by the way, you hear me use that language all the time. His person and his work. His person and his work. So you have this incarnation where he appears, and when he appeared incarnate, this enfleshment that we see in the initial Gospels in John, this enfleshment is a revelation of his person. We see something in that. This enfleshment is a revelation of his provision. He's doing something. He's providing something. And as a consequence of both his person and provision, we have a promise. Let's begin in verse 4. Let's consider his person. Notice how it is described. But when, and again, the but stands in contrast to verse 3. Verse 3 describes us as foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And you say, well, does that describe you? You might say, well, it did. And sometimes it does, but this is not who we now are in Christ. Passing our days in malice and envy. Isn't it horrific to read the descriptive in verse 3? This is what we were. And sometimes because of our old nature, we still have these tendencies. Hated by others and hating one another. That's where we were. Now you have this strong contrast, but. But when. Here we have the incarnation. But when the goodness or kindness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And I've tried to explain or talk about the fact that loving kindness is the Greek word philanthropist. We have transliterated that word into English, so it's the exact same word, but it means lover of humanity. God is a lover of humanity. He is the first philanthropist. From the abundance of his resources, he poured out on us so that we would become heirs and so that we'd be careful to engage in good works. Good works which are in the horizontal. In fact, real quickly, just look at verse 14. It says, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. That language is consistent throughout Titus, so as to help cases of urgent need, so that the people of God will become philanthropists. That's a word you can't hardly say fast three times, let alone once. A generous giver. That's what we have. But God, in his person is generous. He is described as a kind God, as one who loves humanity. We of ourselves should never have become changed people. We could have never become what verses 4 and following describe because of who we were in verse 3 had not the kindness of God and his divine love for humanity shown itself. 
we indeed have no ground for self-exaltation, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. No excuse for haughty treatment of others, either in thought or action, for we now live other and purer lives than they live. Our change to better and higher things was owing to no desert or merit of ours, but solely to the mercy and love of God. The changed life is here solely attributed to the manifestation to man of the kindness and love of God our Savior. But notice how our text speaks of something that happened point in time. There was a point in time when the kindness and love for humanity appeared. And that point in time is when it appeared. It is interesting as you trace the word appear in the New Testament, the appearance of our Lord is twofold. It's spoken of in one of two ways. First, there's the appearance that's tied to his incarnation. He appeared. And second, there is the appearance tied to his second coming when he will come again in glory. You have these two appearances. The first appearance that you have in the incarnation is gracious. The second appearance at his second coming is glorious. In the first coming, he judges sin. In the second coming, he judges sinners. In the first one, it is tied to our salvation. And in the second, it's tied to sentencing. The primary idea behind this appearance stated in verse 4 is his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. God is manifesting himself, saving people from sin and death and for joy and glory. This is what God did. God stepped into, as it were, the equation. He changes everything. This is his person. So when you go about describing God, how might you describe him from this text? We have a kind God. We have a God who actually loves humanity. And we have a God, as we will see, who is incredibly merciful. And he is gracious. And had God not been merciful, withholding from us what we justly deserve, and gracious, giving to us what we don't deserve, you and I would still be in our sin state. We would still be lost, and we would one day be eternally separated from God. But now notice verses 5 and 6. It speaks of his provision. He saved us. When God appeared in incarnation, he saved us. Notice the negative. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. And it is an interesting study. I would encourage you to pick up the manuscript. There's a different word being used here than the word that's spoken of as good works. The works righteousness spoken of here are works that could potentially be done for the vertical. And there's nothing, no work that we can cause to span this gap. That righteousness is impossible. It's coming down. It's never worked up. The good work is all horizontal. And that's how it's played out in our text. Those are the word choices being used in our text. But when it says he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, it's the reason why. Why did God love us? Out of mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I'll comment that on that in a moment. Whom he poured out on us richly, copiously, through Jesus Christ our Savior. So you have not only his person being described as kind and loving and merciful, but then you have this contrast created between verses 3 and the deeds of righteousness in verse 5. Those in verse 3 are incapable of righteous deeds. It's the same word that's used for justification. There is nothing that we can do. There is nothing that humanity can do to justify itself, themselves, before God. Nothing. 
no work of righteousness that we can do. So if someone is asked the question, how do you plan on having your sins atoned? Or how do you plan on standing before God in heaven? Anytime they speak of their own works righteousness, it's not going to work. Why? This text tells us why. There is nothing that we can do to secure that end. Those in verse 3 are incapable of righteous deeds. Thus, if they are to be saved, it must be because of God's mercy. If the redeeming of my eternal soul was by any other means than by his kindness, love, and mercy, I would be lost forever in a lake of fire. But God, who is rich in mercy, saved me. And why did God save me? Because he loved me. What moved God to act in such a way? His love for me. I recognize that there are many things pressing on us today. We come from a full week of living, and we walk in, and we hear Titus 3, 4 through 8, and it tells us that in verse 3, we were miserable wretches. We were at war, weak and wicked. But then verse 4 is opened up. But God, a kind God and a God who loves me, appeared. And in mercy, he saved me because there was no work of my own hands that could secure that end. This is what God did. God is the copious giver. He is lavish in his gifting. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. There is absolutely nothing we can do to affect our justification before God. Nothing. Our justification never works up in the vertical. It only works out on the horizontal. The horizontal display of God's righteous work is through our good work. Listen to the following statement by one of the church's older commentators. He writes, If men could have been saved by their own good works, there would have been no need of salvation by the Redeemer. That's why in human logic, when I hear the response, well, I have to now earn my salvation, I wonder then, and I ask the question, well, then why did Jesus die? I mean, was it inadequate? Was it not sufficient? If our own deeds were now the basis of our title to eternal life, the work of Christ would be equally unnecessary. It is the great and fundamental principle of the gospel that the good works of men come in for no share in the justification of the soul. They are in no sense a consideration on account of which God pardons a man and receives him to favor. The only basis of justification is the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the matter of justification before God, all the race is level. This is what God does. When I read and hear this, my heart sings. I am bowed before God in humility and gratitude. I cannot read this without my heart weeping. As I prepared the study, as I immersed myself in the text, and I read that God loves me, and had he left me to myself, I would have perished. But in mercy, he reached down. In mercy, he became incarnate. In mercy, he was crucified, died, was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. If the redeeming of my eternal soul was by any other means than by his kindness, love, and mercy, I would be lost forever in a lake of fire. But God is rich in mercy, and he saved me because he loves me. Notice how the text continues in 
verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. I've always wrestled with that idea. I, I memorized these verses when I was in Bible college, so that was a very, very long time ago, decades. And I memorized these verses, and they're, they're verses we use because it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And I, I learned all my verses in the King James Bible. And now when I memorize, it's just memorizing through familiarity. I just learn it. But the washing of regeneration and the renewing, the renewing of the Holy Spirit are probably in parallel. We try to figure out what's happening here. And they are probably in parallel statements. If they're not parallel, and by parallel, I'm saying they're saying the exact same thing. The washing of regeneration is the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's what the Spirit of God does to us when we are saved. But if they're not in parallel, if they're not synonymous statements, they are probably what is called synthetic which they're building off of each other. The washing of regeneration would be shadow, and the substance is the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We see this washing of regeneration. Some would reference baptism, water baptism, and then at the other part you have spirit baptism because there's only one baptism, and it's spirit baptism. Water baptism reflects that. But you have this washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The text tells me why the Jesus seed is always producing gospel fruit. When God saves us, he makes us new. What we once were, we no longer are, though we still have. The gospel changes us into something entirely different. Folks, I I am not only telling you this from the text, I am telling you this from experience itself. This is what the gospel does. What Christ secures for us in his person and work, the Holy Spirit powerfully and effectually works in us. And it is an inside-out working. Verse 6 says that it is a copious pouring, whom he poured out on us richly. I believe that what is being spoken of here is reflected in John 17, that high priestly prayer of the upper room discourse, where we note how... Jesus says he must go in order that the Holy Spirit might come. His statement is theological, it's not spatial. The Holy Spirit was already there doing his work, but a next or new thing would be added. When Jesus Christ became for us the sin bearer, he took upon himself our sin. When we, by his grace through faith, believed who he is and what he did, the Father takes this work and he imputes it to us. And this work is embodied in the Holy Spirit. It is his, this righteousness, that is now ours. I mean, that's a massive theological mouthful. But when I got saved, God the Father imputed to me the very righteousness of Christ. That righteousness is embodied, is, is presented, as it were, by the Holy Spirit who now abides in me. So right now, that righteousness which has been imputed to me is always being worked in me, and through me to those around me, so I am living the Christ life. I am living a Holy Spirit-filled, walking life. That's what this text is telling me, and it's powerful. This work, as noted in the text, is rich. It is copious. There is more than you need. It is lavish in the dispensing. What does this tell me? Verse 3 is what I was. That's what you were. You were verse 3. You were that wicked person. You might say 
growing up, you were a goody-two-shoes, you were the obedient child, but that's what you were. You were hated by others, and you were hating others. That's, that's just the language of the text. That's who you were in Adam. But the gospel powerfully changed you. It radically changed you. It's been copiously dispensed upon you in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ has done for you what you could have never done for yourself, and God loves you. What does this text tell me? This text tells me about a radical gospel. It tells me about a massive transformation that took place in my life. Think about the implications of this text. However deep the sin and dark the stain, God wins. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Look at your life, and what is it about your past or present that brings you shame? What sin have you committed or took pleasure in that haunts you even after you have been saved? I speak to this on a regular basis. People look at their lives and they say, oh, I I was such a horrible person. You know what? I don't argue with them because the fact of the matter is what? They were. They are, verse 3, whether you recognize it or not. I know I'm a wicked man in Adam. Thank God for the radical nature of the gospel and its transforming power. But what sin have you committed or took pleasure in that haunts you even after you have been saved? Well, I am here to tell you that God's work is copious. It is rich. It is lavish in the dispensing. There is an excessive and lavish expression of God's working because of who he is as an infinite and immeasurable God that swallows up all of your past deeds and renders them powerless. What was the Apostle Paul who's writing this? A murderer. And who was he murdering? Christians. He was hated by others and hating others. So Paul writes these words. Do you think Paul understood what he wrote? I think so. Do you understand what he wrote? Perhaps today, as an heir of God, you are committing acts of debauchery. Right now, you find yourself stuck in the most heinous activity, and you can't figure out how to get out. Sometimes Christians find themselves in those situations. I tell you in the name of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and the provision of Jesus... Stop. We have that right to stop. Cease and desist. You are no longer a child of sin and enslaved to your appetites. I also tell you in your fight against sin that it has no authority over you. Regardless of the assault, you can never be anything other than what you are, a child of God. Thank Him. Take heart, keep fighting against sin by bathing yourself in the gospel each and every day. Folks, God loves you. That's what you need to hear. And the God who loves you has radically changed your life so that you no longer are what you, the descriptive of verse 3, you are now what we are following in verses 6 and 7. But notice the promise in verses 7 and 8. So that, so here's what God did. God sent his son as an act of kindness, mercy, and love. And he saved us, not by our own works of righteousness, but according to his mercy. And he has regenerated us 
that word regeneration is the word genesis. It's a compound, but it has the word genesis in it. You know what God did when he saved you? He rebirthed you. We know that language from John 3. And he renewed you. He changed you completely. That's what God did. And when he did that, here are the outcome of that activity. He pours upon you lavishly the Spirit so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. This is having your cake and getting to eat it. Once you were an orphan, now you're an heir. So that being justified by his grace, the Jesus seed, we might have this gospel fruit of becoming heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Then as noted, verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, those who are justified, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We have a twofold promise in our tax. As a consequence of the Jesus seed, you are now an heir of eternal life. As a consequence of the Jesus seed, you are now careful to engage in good works, good deeds. This is what the Jesus seed does. Think about the language of our text of the paragraph. We have a God who is a philanthropist. He's a generous giver. He radically transforms those who receive his Son as Savior and Lord. And he changes them into his children. And as children of the first philanthropist, we become philanthropists. I'm going to make it easier. As children of the first giver, (laughs) we become givers. We become generous people. You say to yourself, well, I don't have a whole lot. That's not the criteria for generosity. When 67-year-old carpenter Russell Herman died in 1994, his will included a staggering set of bequests. Included in his plan for distribution was more than $2 billion for the city of East St. Louis, another billion and a half for the state of Illinois, Two and a half billion for the National Forest System. And to top off the list, Herman left six trillion dollars to the government to help pay off the national debt. That sounds amazingly generous. But there was a small problem. Herman's only asset when he died was a 1983 Oldsmobile. He made grand pronouncements, but there was no real generosity involved. His promises were meaningless because there was nothing to back them up. Folks, thankfully, God has the resources to back up his promises. God is always first and foremost the great philanthropist. The fact that we are saved is a testament to God's mercy and grace. God has withheld from us what we deserve and has given to us what we could not earn. Paul wants the people of God to be overwhelmed by the language There is a shock and awe in all of this. This is why he ends in the following verse where he says the saying is trustworthy. These things are excellent and profitable for you. The stunning aspect to all of this is that God is the first philanthropist. But what he does in regenerating and renewing us is turn us into philanthropists. God, the first giver, makes us givers to one another. We become what he is. Christians are not stingy and selfish people. We are generous and giving people. This is what the Jesus seed does in the people of God. 
So we look at a text like this and we ask ourselves the question, does it really matter? Well, as Christians, the Jesus seed has been implanted so deeply into our souls that we have been radically changed into something entirely different. So you look back, which might be your tendency. I, I seldom look back because <laughs> I don't necessarily want to see what is there or has been there. But we look back and we begin to bemoan and regret. But God has changed you into something entirely new. And as a result of this Jesus seed, you are now an heir of heaven's hope and engaging in good deeds. This is what the gospel does. What you once were in Adam, you no longer are in Christ. From God's gracious activity, he creates gracious people. This is what the gospel does. The new birth creates philanthropists. And we think, well, who's a philanthropist? Well, Bill Gates is one, and perhaps we name several others. But you know who are philanthropists? The people of God. Because God loves us and his love flows to us and through us, those around us are loved. This is why the scripture says, love one another. And First John will say to us, do not say that you love God if you what? Hate your brother. Why? Because this causes this. The Jesus seed is always producing gospel fruit. Folks, the takeaway is really this. God loves you more than you could ever imagine. I, I cannot process or fathom that, but God loves me, and his mercy is, is just immeasurable. And from his love for me, he has given to me, and he's working through me so that I love one another. Please stand as we close in prayer.